So, <coughs> I've already told you a little bit of the story while well, I told the kids, and probably you overheard, but let me explain a little bit more. So, when I was a kid, my parents would take my siblings and me to visit Uncle Bud. We called him Uncle Bud, but Bernard Bobin was actually my great uncle. He was my dad's mom's brother. Uh, never married, never had any kids. And so, uh, you know, um, so for him, um, legacy was, was something that, um, that I know he wanted to be sure to pass on. Right? When I knew him, he was living alone on the family homestead in rural northern Michigan, where he grew up. It was a Sears house. Have you, have you all been? It was not big. <laughs> um, I loved visiting Uncle Bud because his house was so cool. He had a real old-fashioned hand pump in the kitchen that worked, that went into a slate sink. Uh, he had a rain cistern in the basement in which he kept goldfish, which were gigantic. So you'd go down into this dark basement and there would be these fish. And he, he had stacks of, of National Geographic magazines, which I love. And he had trained chipmunks to eat out of his hand. Um, so going to his house, it was a little bit like, uh, you know, going to Snow White and the Seven Dwarves or something like that. <laughs> I didn't actually see any animals washing his dishes, I'm sure he probably did, did, did that himself. Uh, one day, while the adults were talking, my younger brother and I explored the upstairs of the house, and we found a box of letters from the time when Uncle Bud served in the Army during the Korean War. He... he uh, spent just a year in the U.S. Army during the Korean conflict in the humanitarian division. So that's not always something we hear a lot about, but there probably, those of you who are familiar with the armed services know that there's a humanitarian division for the Army, and they uh, both do uh, relief efforts here in the United States and around the world, right? So when there are hurricanes, when there are refugees, when there are, you know, earthquakes. He had previously, and this is another dynamic in my family, he had previously been excused from the military service because he had four brothers who were already deployed. And he was the youngest... And he was needed to run the family farm. But finally, after his four older brothers were deployed, and I guess, you know, at least one of them returned, then he got his, then he got his turn, and he got called up. Can you imagine that? Maybe some of you are part of a family where all the sons, all the young men, were in the uh, service. Uh, 
great grandma Bovin, his mom. Uh, so, and, and, and I remember, so back to the letters, I remember reading through those letters and what impressed me was just how every day they were. Maybe some of you have letters or maybe you wrote letters, you know, and those are very personal, precious things. And, you know, as a little kid, maybe I would have, you know, I'd seen movies and heard, read stories about war and, you know, war can be dramatic, right? Heroism, sacrifice. But these letters from Uncle Bud to Great Grandma Bovin and to great, from Great Grandma Bovin to Uncle Bud were what's going on on the farm. You know, your sister did this today. A cow got out and we had to chase it down. Literally, seriously, those were the sorts of things. And Uncle Bud, wow, you know, Korea is a very different place. You know, everything's great. We're doing a lot of work. And then I remember great-grandma writing, uh, I miss you, be safe, please come home. And even as a kid, I could sense the love in those words. Uh, for Dutch dairy farmers, that, that was about as close to I love you as you get. <laughs> well, I'm only slightly joking. I mean... My ancestors are no joke. I loved Uncle Bud because he was kind, interesting, and unlike many of us in the family, he had gotten out of Michigan. He had gotten off the farm. He was one of the first of my ancestors to get off the farm through the military. And maybe that's an experience that some of us or some of our ancestors had. It was a way to get out into the big world. It still is. For many folks and, and many uh, families and many young people who don't otherwise have opportunities. He was a self-taught Mason. He worked all over the US, including Hawaii and uh, apparently Arizona. <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh, and the reason why Uncle Bud gave that to me was because when I was a kid, I had a rock and mineral collection and he knew I was into those things. And I've kept that huge chunk of petrified wood I've had that for over 40 years now, and I've carried it with me wherever I go. One of the last times I saw him in his home, he gave me a small China coffee cup, which that, unfortunately, I can't locate anymore. But I remember on it, in gold letters, were inscribed the words, Remember me. Our scripture today shows us a confrontation between Jesus and a group. I, that was a jump cut. <laughs> Our scripture today shows us a confrontation between Jesus uh, and a group called the Sadducees, which, you know, Beth, Beth, most of us are not very familiar with them. They don't come up very often, but they do come up. 
And Luke tells us the important fact for Luke about the Sadducees is that they did not believe in the resurrection. Um, Jesus, by contrast, Jesus, along with other ancient Jews of that time, for example, the Pharisees, whom maybe some of you are familiar with, Jesus and the Pharisees, though, they argued they, they did agree on resurrection. At the outset, just so that we don't get into any, you know, subtle anti-Jewishness or anti-Semitism here, which unfortunately is a, is a legacy of our faith, it's important to remember that Sadducees, their more famous rivals, the Pharisees, Jesus, his disciples, John the Baptist, his disciples, They were all Jews. They were all Jews. All of them. And ancient Jews, just as a little reminder, like modern Christians, like sometimes, not here, but I hear sometimes, congregationalists argue about things. It's never happened here. So, before we go too far down a road we don't want to go down, just remember, this is an argument. They're having an argument, disagreement. doesn't make anyone bad or wrong. It just makes them different. It just makes us different. Sadducees were, actually, in that time, they were kind of the conservatives. So, you know, you may want to think about that. They were from old aristocratic families, you know, they were like the Mayflower families of the, of the Jews. They tended to be a little, they, they weren't early adopters. They were a little bit skeptical of innovations and new ideas, like the idea of resurrection. That was a new idea. They took as their sacred text the first five books of the Bible only. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That was it for them. All these other books that we have in our Old Testament, those were newer books. Those weren't the original. They wanted to stick with the original. Those five books are called what? Bible scholars? Yeah, I figured someone would know that. It's the Torah. Oh, there's my Bible scholar over there. Okay. Um, And when they read the Torah, they didn't see really any strong evidence for resurrection. And if you read the Torah closely, I mean, it's, there's not a lot, that doesn't, resurrection doesn't really come up in that part of the Old Testament very much. Jesus, on the other hand, Pharisees and other Jewish groups accepted both the Torah and, you know, the rest of the books of the Old Testament. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, blah, 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 all the rest. (laughs) Got it? Okay. And in those books, we see evidence for a belief in the resurrection of those who follow God. and, And that would happen on what was known as the last day or the day of the Lord, it's sometimes referred to. 
And this was imagined as a future event in which God would intervene decisively in human history to reward the righteous and punish the wicked. See, one of the things that gave rise to this idea of of resurrection was the problem that maybe you all recognize this, that too often it seems like good things or bad things happen to good people, right? Bad things do happen to good people, right? Maybe bad things have happened to some of you. And you're good people, right? They also notice that a lot of times bad people get away with a lot of stuff. <laughs> so how does, that, how does that all get sorted out? Is the, is the universe fundamentally just unjust and just a bad, chaotic joke of a place? Well, resurrection is one way to deal with that, that there will be a point in time in which scores will be settled things will be made right. The reward for the righteous is life in this new age that will come after the day of the Lord. And, uh, and, and that's how Jesus puts it in this text. Now, back to the Sadducees. So they're having an argument. They had some problems with the logic of this idea. It sounds nice, but... But think about it. So they pose Jesus a question. The question has to do with an ancient practice called leveret marriage. It doesn't come up often. Leveret comes from the Latin word lever, which means brother-in-law. Okay? Leveret marriage required that if a man died, leaving a spouse without children, follow along, pay attention, his brother-in-law was to marry the widow and produce children with her. And this was important for two reasons. And this was not just uh, like a lot of ancient cultures did this. And this was important for two reasons having to do with patriarchy. Okay. And the first one is it preserved the deceased man's name that is his lineage and all the legal ramifications regarding his inheritance. It was about legacy. It was about making sure that that husband who had passed away had a legacy of some sort. So that was the brother-in-law's. I know it sounds weird, but that's what they did. And the second thing, uh, reason why it happened was it was it provided social security. Uh, for the widow who would depend on her children to support her in her old age. And, and that sort of thing still goes on today, right? That's what my kids are going to do. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm on the record. Now, all right, so that's the context. It's very complicated. So the Sadducees say, okay, so we have this, we, let's, we're going to pose a hypothetical question here. Uh, the question basically asks, if a woman has multiple marriages in this life, again, because her spouses keep dying, which you may want to investigate what that's all about. <laughs> 
But anyway, she's had multiple spouses. Her husbands keep dying, and she keeps remarrying. Who will she be married to in the next life? So actually, that you know, when I thought about it, it's not such a weird question. It sounds so far away, but it's actually not. I mean, we have still today people who, you know, are widows or widowers, and they get remarried. And the Sadducees are just thinking about, so if everyone's resurrected and we all got our bodies and we're all, you know, a lot of us imagine heaven like that, we're all going to see our families again and we're all going to love each other. And then all of a sudden this dude or this woman comes up and like, whoop, whoa, wife number one, wife number two. Uh Right? We don't like to think it through that far, but the Sadducees did. (laughs) <laughs> the Sadducees did. And so they were just attempting to use generally accepted cultural and legal arguments of the time to point out the logical absurdity of believing in the resurrection. It just didn't make sense. Jesus responds by arguing against the whole premise, the whole premise of the question. And that premise is that the world to come is going to be more or less like the world we know. So I think all of us need to let that sink in a little bit, right? I mean, Christians, people of faith get get accused of living in fantasy worlds, and sometimes we do. But Jesus was not living in a fantasy world. He was not saying that Heaven is going to be like this. Except the way we want it to be. Like pleasant for us. Jesus argues in institutions like, Jesus is saying institutions like marriage are not going to exist in heaven. Jesus argues we will be like the angels. What exactly this means, who knows? It sounds like, so here's maybe good news for you, there will be bodies, right? There will be personalities. It's not like we're just erased, right? There will be consciousness. It's not like it's just, again, it's not like it's just, blacked out. But all of these things will be completely reconfigured. Will we see our loved ones in heaven? Seems at least what Jesus, probably, possibly, it seems like that, right? We're going to kind of have identities. But it also sounds like those distinctions between the distinctions between who are our loved ones. Remember, we love to talk about our loved ones, but just, just remember, when you have love, when you have loved ones, you kind of may, I know we don't intend to do this. I talk about my loved ones, but there's a little point in there where we're setting up those who are not our loved ones. We have our family and those who are not. Our family. 
And what Jesus seems to be suggesting is those distinctions between our loved ones and not our loved ones are not going to exist anymore. We will all be loved ones. The distinctions between who our family is and who is not our family are not going to exist anymore. We are all God's family, and we are all God's children. And I know it sounds, it, it sounds a little bit scary, like it has a little bit of an edge to it, right? But again, I just... I don't want us to be the fairy tale church, right? I want us to be the, like, real church. But don't worry, it's all a little hazy. No one knows. <laughs> it could be completely different from that. The fact that there were skeptics then, as there are skeptics now, doesn't surprise me a bit. And I'm a skeptic. Come on, let's be honest. But I do have hope. And I do know that there is something more. And that it's amazing. Whatever it is, it's going to be great. It is. It's going to be great. That's what I believe. It will be. So where does that leave us on this side of the veil? We remember. Jesus ends his response to the Sadducees with, with these words. Now he, that is God, is God not of the dead, but of the living. For to him all of them are alive. Jesus is arguing that God can't be the God of our ancestors, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jesus, Mary, Joseph, St. Paul, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr., Mary Bogansky, Jerry Dickerson, Edith Wilhelm, Uncle Bud, great-grandma Bovin, unless they are, as far as God is concerned, alive. Does that make sense? To us, they are in a very real sense gone. They are gone. I mean, we can't talk to them anymore. But Jesus is saying, remember, there's another perspective on this death thing. There's God's perspective. And from God's perspective... They are alive because our God is a God of life. So remember, so we on this side remember we make our loved ones present to us in memories in photographs, in stories, in how our bodies feel or felt when they were close by. We do our best to make them alive in our imaginations and we pass those stories on to our friends and family and those who are dear. 
We make them alive in our imaginations because as followers of God, we are called to be like God, for whom all of those who have passed on are alive. So we do our own limited version of that by making them alive to us. And we do that as a congregation. That's part of our job, is to remember. Human memory fades. But Jesus assures us that for the God of the universe, who knows the number of every hair on your head, and marks the moment when every sparrow falls from the sky, the saints who have gone on before us are very much alive. Amen.